The dance-off is over, so head <laughs> <to> your seats. <laughs> well, great to see everybody today. I want to encourage you. I, last week, we, we talked about this whole idea of the family matters, but we actually took it from the idea that there is there's a very real enemy out there that is set against you. There's a schemer, in the, and this is a biblical concept that he is a liar, he's a deceiver. The Bible calls him the father of lies, says he was a murderer from the beginning in John chapter 8. But whether you know it or not, your family is under siege, you're under attack. Whether we're talking about your own personal family that you live with, or your kids that are off and, and living their lives, or the, the family that we're sit, sitting in this room together right now, we are under attack, we are under a siege. And the reason that we're under attack is because we're actually a threat to the enemy. I mean, when I get a little nervous when things are going really smooth. I'm not going to lie. I get a little bit nervous, not because I'm expecting the bottom to drop out or the wheels to fall off. I get nervous thinking maybe I'm not moving the kingdom ball down the field. Newton's law, third law comes into play. For every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction, an equal and opposite reaction. So as we move things, things move back against us. And so we know there's a very real enemy who wants to see you destroyed. He's a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy you. But we have good news, right? Do we have any but God folks in here? Any but God families? So we live knowing that and live with that, but we don't live in fear and we don't live in paranoia. We don't live thinking, oh my gosh, when's the next shoe going to drop? Oh my gosh, when's the next thing going to break? Listen, that's unhealthy. And that is not what Jesus talked about when he said there's a thief who comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. And then Jesus flips it. He does a but God on it and says, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm going, let's lean into that a little bit. Amen? Lean into that. So I have to ask a question. We're going to do a little informal survey. did in the first service. It was really interesting. And here it is. How many of you, after being in the service last week, being made aware of the war that we're in, that Paul told Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, to wage the good warfare, how many of you experienced a heightened sense of warfare this week? Now, here's what comforts me about that. I'm not the only one. So we're in this thing together. I'm telling you, it was 100 times hundred times. And, and I, Annette was like, she sort of pulled me aside and, and in her loving, supportive way. She doesn't know I'm talking about it right now. She said, why did you preach on spiritual warfare? Every time you preach on that, things start going crazy. And it's exactly true. It's because it exposes the enemy. And I'm telling you, the enemy does not like to be exposed. Now, if you were here last week, I made a comment in the service last week, and it was this. I don't like talking about spiritual warfare. Not for that reason. It's because I don't want to give the enemy any press. The enemy of your soul is like a bad politician. He doesn't care if it's good or bad press. He just wants press. And that's what he's looking for. So we don't go around talking about him and giving him uh, a name. So here's what we do. We go around talking about how amazing Jesus is. And what we're talking about today, we're talking about from dysfunction to destiny. And I'll explain what that means in a minute. But what we're talking about really is back in this warfare thing of turning on the light. Because when you walk into a dark room, now, when I was a kid, I'd get creeped out on that stuff. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and I remember one time being in a church at night. If you've ever been in a church at night and you're the only one, it's scary. I'm just telling you. I'm not sure what resides up in these rafters, but I'm just telling you. There's more noises in a church at night than, than a carnival going on next door. So I remember walking through that church, and I had the heebie-jeebies. You know what I'm saying? Y'all know, that's a deep theological word right there for you. 
I, I had just chills from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. And I couldn't get to a light switch quick enough. And I, you know what I'm saying? But here's the deal. When you're walking with Jesus, all you have to do is walk over and turn on a light. You know what a light does? It immediately dispels the darkness. And so now we're going to talk about warfare, but not in the fighting, warring terms that we talked about last time. We're going to talk about what happens when Jesus shows up in a dysfunctional family. What happens when Jesus is introduced, when light is introduced into our darkness? I'm telling you, darkness has to flee. Can I get an amen? Let's pray as we get started. Father, we thank you for your word. We lean into it today. And we thank you that Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. And Father, he went on to say, so are we. Wow. So when we show up with Jesus in us, that's all that's needed to dispel the enemy. Give us grace to live our lives with eyes wide open, with ears open to hear, and with hearts that are so open to receive, to hear, and to know the truth that makes us free. We just sang about it, to know the truth that makes us free. In Jesus' name, everyone said? A couple of things. If you look at your screen, just the episodes we're on. We're on episode six right now, but we've already covered it's complicated. We covered love wins the day. How many of you still are saying it's complicated? That came out of Annette's mouth this week. Uh, we made a comment. She goes, it's complicated. I'm like, there we go. We're right back. Glad to see you're listening, honey. So uh, love wins the day. We're better together. Navigating storms. That was our little family chat where we got up and just, just said, hey, this is what life, real life is for us, but God. But God. Yeah, things are tough and the journey gets a little bit crazy, but God. So we are a but God family. And then episode five, that was faith for the fight. That was stepping in and fighting the good fight. And remember, a good fight is a fight you win. Yeah, so it's a good fight. So today we're going to take off, and I want, to, I want to share something with you. We've been talking about three points, actually, through everything. And it's basically this. Family is a place where safety is valued, both in the natural, where it should be a safe place, also in the spiritual, and in the emotional realm. It should be a safe place where you can talk about and open up about things, but a lot of homes are not safe, but it should be. Another one is family is a place where faith is valued, and we're going to go there today. But it's also a place where grace is valued. When I say grace, I mean this. It's where we live with the recognition that our responsibility is to extend the same grace that we ourselves require. Now, if you look at it in that light, that means we're extending a lot of grace to one another. Amen? So grace has to be valued in the home to where we realize, hey, we're not against each other. We're family. We're, for, we're better together. Let's be together on this. Yes, it's complicated, but love wins the day. And so I want to share this with you. This is from Dr. Henry Cloud, one of my favorite authors. He wrote the book called Boundaries. And listen to what he says about Jesus being the truth introduced into family darkness. He says this, he is the truth, he, Jesus. And he, Jesus, wants us to deal in truth with ourselves and our loved ones. We want the truth about you and your family to flood into and overrun the secrets that keep you in bondage to dysfunctional behavior and relationships. Family secrets, family secrets abound. Generations have gone before us that didn't talk, that didn't open up about things, about brokenness. I found out after my mom passed away, and I'm going through paperwork, that she had been married and divorced. I go to my granny, and I say, Granny, why didn't we talk about this? She said, why would we talk about it? I'm like, because it's kind of important for me to know in my history and my heritage. And she said, well, yeah, and your dad too. I'm like, what? 
Is there any, in fact, I'm going to sit down with my dad, 81 years old. Next time I'm with him, I'm going to say, Dad, before you go home, is there anything I need to know? Is there anything that's going to surprise me? Because that generation just didn't talk about it. Annette found out recently, like two months ago, that she has two siblings that she didn't know about. Two. Her mom had a child before. She's got a sibling running around, we think. We're not sure. And her father had a child before. And so she's got family out there that she didn't know about. Some of you are shaking your heads because you've been there, done that. Families keep secrets. But here's the beauty is that truth, Jesus, the light and life of the world wants to open things up so that we don't live in shame to our past. We live in victory over our past. Why? Because we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. Come on, somebody. We're fighting from victory, not for victory. We've already won. A friend of mine shared this with me last night. He had a rough week because we were talking about all of us having a rough week after me preaching on spiritual warfare. So I'm going to pause on that for a little bit. But anyway, we both were talking about how we went through it. And he said, man, I felt like I lost a battle this week. You know, I told my friend, I said this. I said, you might have lost a battle, but you're not. We, the war is already won. We win the war. Jesus went to hell, hung out for a few days, three. And he came back with the keys of the kingdom. And he tore the enemy up. And now he gives those keys to us and says, all right, let's go win this thing. Let's go. We got it. Already, already won the game. You just go play. You just go enjoy it. Isn't it crazy to think that if I step up to the plate and I know that the, ga that the game's already won, that I can violate everything I was ever taught as a baseball player and swing for the fence? Forget the percentage shot. Forget the safe hit. Forget bunting and getting to first base. How about let's just swing for the fence? Wild cut, take your eye off the ball, swing like a maniac. Why? Because if you hit it, it's out of the ballpark. But if we know we're going to win, why not go for it, right? Here's the beauty, church. We win. We win. Let's see what the scripture says about this. We're going to look at a story about a little family dysfunction. Luke chapter 10. I'm going to be going out of my Bible. If you have yours, go ahead. We'll have it on the screen. And I, poor Melissa, I've said, you just have to keep up. Just run, just run with us. Here we go. So where we get out of uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 38. And it's a story about some people you may have heard of, Mary. Martha and Lazarus. You've heard of those folks? Well, it was a family that lived a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem, and Jesus loved this dysfunctional family. Now, before you just go all crazy on me with this dysfunction thing, dysfunction, it may just be a breakdown in, in communication, a breakdown in relationship. Don't assume the worst when we use the word dysfunction because we tend to do that. How about just default to something's not quite right in the family? How many of you know we're probably all in a dysfunctional family to a degree? To a degree. And so this family was a dysfunctional family. By the way, Jesus loved dysfunctional families. Why do I know that? Because he hung out with people. That's how we know it. He loved people. That means he loved dysfunctional families. And listen, and let's look at his relationship with this family. This is fascinating. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, that's Bethany, two, two miles outside this, the old city, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, as we can expect Martha to do. Verse 39, and she had a sister called Mary, who also, look at the description of Mary. Martha meets him at the door because she's got some tasks to take care of. Mary sat at the feet at Jesus' feet and beard and her beard I have underlined it covered the H feet and heard his word. 
So Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha is up going, oh my gosh, I have a task list. Jesus just showed up with the disciples. She goes into full Jewish mama mode. It's that we got to take care of these people. We got to practice hospitality. And she gets busy. Look what it says in verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving. All right, let's go ahead and do what we shouldn't do. We're going to lift this right out of context. You should never prove text of scripture, but I'm telling you, this works. How many of you have found yourself distracted with much serving? I'm telling you, we can get up here, and I thought this morning as I walked in the door and I saw everybody here like worker bees running around, we're all checking boxes, and I thought how easy it is because we do this every weekend, how easy it is to begin to take what was fun and exciting and enjoyable and gave us an adrenaline rush and a joy to become a task, can become like a rut, something that we just do because we do. And we have to work really hard to rediscover the joy of what we do. David talked about, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Why? Because it had lost its luster. And he's like, restore that joy, restore that excitement that I once had. Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached Jesus. Now, you got to understand, this is a Jewish mama. So she had a big apron on, covered in flour, and she had her hands on her hips. So she comes up to Jesus, and she takes a mama posture. She approached him and said, Lord, do you not care? Okay, can we back up just for a sec? This is the one who says, you know, cast your cares upon me for I care for you. This is the one who went to the cross and cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus might have cared. This is the Jesus who wept over Jerusalem. This is the Jesus who healed the lame and the sick and the blind and the broken. This is the Jesus who emptied himself of deity, let go of what did not grasp what he could have in Philippians chapter 2, the perusia. He emptied himself, came to this earth, lived his life, allowed himself to be born in an earth suit, and moved into the neighborhood, and was prone to everything we're prone to, betrayal, sickness, pain, suffering, all of these things, and she's saying, do you not care? You're God in the flesh, but do you not care? Do you hear how absurd this is, what she's doing? But she's pulling a mama on him. Pack your bags, Jesus. You're going on a guilt trip. So watch, look what happens. I love this story. She approached him and said, Lord, do you not care? Can you just hear her tone? Do we have any grannies like that? My grandmother, oh my gosh, she was a pro at this. I mean, with a sentence, you're like, oh, what have I done? I'm so sorry, you know. She knew how to turn a phrase. Martha was no different. She approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all by myself? Do you think you could hear a fiddle in the background, a little, a little violin playing, a sad soundtrack life, life soundtrack? Therefore, tell her to help me. Oh, is that not like us? I'm just going to tell Jesus what to do because I know better than Jesus. Jesus, go tell her to help me. Can you hear this mama doing this? Have we ever prayed like that? Here's what, I, here's what I think you should do, Lord. Have we ever prayed where we're not really asking, we're telling him what to do because we might know better than him what needs to happen in a certain... Boy, it's quiet in here. And the Baron Richard pressure just changed in the room. I'm just feeling something. In, there's a disturbance in the force right now. I'm feeling that. Therefore, tell her to help me. Wow. 
Okay. All right. So here's Jesus' response. And Jesus answered and said to her, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. No, Martha, Martha. Look what he says. You are worried and troubled about many things. Why? Because she was pulling the granny thing. She was pulling, my grandmother would never sit down. I don't know that I ever ate a meal with my grandmother. Because she was too busy martyring herself for the family. She was serving us, and God rest her soul. She's amazing. She was the matriarch who held it all together. But she was the martyr in the kitchen because she was so busy serving us that she was mad about it most of the time. And we're trying to eat and enjoy, and she's mad. She's slamming things down. We're like, Granny, come sit with us. I can't. I got to take care of you. I mean, it was like, it was very confusing to a child, I'm just saying. And Martha's no different. Martha's got that, I've got things to do. She's troubled about many things. And then Jesus just flips the script here, and he says this, one thing is needed. In other words, he's about to tell her, I don't want you to serve me. I just want you to be with me. And look what happens. Look what he says. One thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. He's saying, look, I value you more than what you can do for me. And I'm telling you, family, he's saying the same thing to us. He values you more than what you can do for him. There's two roads we can take. One of them is the road of pleasing God. And that leads to a room. And in that room, it's a room of works. It's a room of law. It's a room of just wearing yourself out. There's another road you can take. And it's a road that says, I just want to be with him. I don't, it's not, I'm not here to please God. I'm here to trust God. So I'm going to take the road of trust, and that's going to lead to a room, a room of grace, where everybody in there understands that there's no perfect people allowed. And when you tell your bad story, they just go, is that all you got? Is that all you got? Really? That all you got? Because look, we're in this thing together. Jesus says this, I want you, not just what you can do for me. That's the kind of God we serve. Now, taking the same family. We see the dynamic here. There's frustration on Martha's part. Mary just wants to sit. Martha wants to check the boxes. We're wondering about Lazarus, right? There's another per component here. So go with me to John chapter 11. If you're using your Bibles or your phone, or you can look on the screen. Now look at this. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. There it is again, two miles out, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Notice that Mary is spending a lot of time at the feet of Jesus. If she's not sitting there and posturing herself as a disciple, she's actually weeping and anointing his feet and wiping them with her tears. That sounds very, with her hair, that sounds very humiliating. It was a humble act. So Mary has taken the posture of someone who says, I'm going to honor this man. I'm going to honor who he is. And that's that Mary. We're going to see it happens again. So it'll be interesting. Watch this. Verse 2, it was that Mary anointed the fragrant oil, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you loved is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death. He's talking to his own disciples. He's in another place. But for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Why do we know that? Because he spent time with them. 
He and his disciples stayed when they went to Jerusalem. They didn't stay in Jerusalem. They stayed out in Bethany with them. So they had a relationship. So when he heard that he was sick, look what Jesus does. He rushes to his side to fix the problem, right? Wrong. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. So being the inquisitive sort that I am, I looked this up in commentaries, and guess what I found out? Nobody really knows what that means. Even the commentators, the theologians are divided on what that, they were all over the map on this one. It was interesting. All kinds of speculation. You know what I believe? I believe that there's a timing to what God does, and I'm just going to say it. I have on more than one occasion gotten ahead of God and tried to fix somebody's situation. Especially as a pastor, I'm, we're very prone to this because people expect us to fix situations. The problem with that is, is that we can get in our flesh and we can go try to fix somebody when in fact all we're doing is enabling them. In fact, we're getting ahead of God in the way of God because God may be using that very situation to teach them something. To craft their character, because you do know God's more concerned about your character than your comfort, right? He's more concerned about your character than your convenience. And God may be using a situation, a circumstance, and yet the fix-it people, we want to get in there and help people out. And we think we're rescuing when in fact we're enabling, and in fact we may be interrupting the process of God, which will in turn, it will in turn prolong their agony. That was one of the hardest things for me as a young pastor to learn was when to wait. Because it was easy to go in. It was easy to step in. It was much harder to sit back and watch somebody crash and burn, but God was saying, wait. Not now. Not yet. And not everybody understands that sometimes because people from the outside looking in and goes, why aren't you there? Why aren't you showing up? Why aren't you in the middle of that? And it's like, I don't have a green light. Remember our mantra around here? We do the next thing Jesus tells us to do. That goes for everything. And so I believe that's why this happened. I believe he waited because the father was saying, wait, not yet. Not yet. Do you think Jesus wanted to go? He's the son of man, not just the son of God. And he's human now. And he loves Lazarus. He loves Martha and Mary. I think he was torn. I think he wanted to go. Verse 7 then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Okay, it's time. Green light. Let's go. And that's what they do. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, teacher, lately the Jews shot, sought to stone you, and are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? So Jesus lights into this really, where did this come from, liturgy here, of, of that sounds completely off base. But how many of you saw the Karate Kid 1 and 2? Oh, come on. We're going theological here right now. Karate Kid, do you remember the famous line from number one that Miyagi taught young Karate Kid? Remember? Ooh. Help me, somebody. Wax on, wax off. Now, when he taught him that principle, young Karate Kid was like Ralph Macchio, right? Did I remember that right? Oh, my gosh. Okay. It's there somewhere. So Ralph Macchio's like, you're crazy. You just want me to paint your fence. But what he didn't realize is that Miyagi, being a master teacher, was actually teaching him the art that was beyond the obvious. And how often does Jesus come in and bring something from left field? And you're like, what? 
Where that is that is not the question the disciples asked. Look at this. Here's what the disciples said. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you're going to go there again? And then Jesus comes in left field. And here's what Jesus says. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And I'm sure they were going, yes, that makes absolute sense. They, he didn't even answer. Listen. If I get to heaven and I stand before the throne of grace and God says, I'm sorry, humor was not in the Bible, I am going to be in big trouble. But if you stand before God and you never laughed and you never read this and saw the life in it and the humor in it and the humanity of it, hey, we're just funny as people, amen? How can it not be funny? And you stand before God and you didn't laugh, and you didn't see it, and it was all so dark and dreary and heavy and dragging your faith around like a ball and chain. I think God's going to say, I'm so sorry you missed the joy that was there before you. So I'm saying, I'm going to take the risk, and I'm going to laugh at these situations because this is amazing. Verse 11. I'm not even going to try to unpack what Jesus said because I was scratching my head too. Verse 11, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps. Now he's back on the topic. Our friend sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. Now we're, we're miscommunicating again, right? They think he's sleeping, sleeping. Jesus is like, no, he's sleeping, sleeping. Okay, listen to what happens. Verse 13, however, Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought that he was speaking about taking a rest and sleep. We call that a nap, right? Look what happens, verse 14. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He just had to get to the point. Thank you, Lord. Verse 15, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Notice he says for their sakes. He didn't say for my sake, and we'll see why in a minute. He actually says, I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. This is interesting. What, look what happens. Nevertheless, let us go. So now it's time. But he says that you may believe. And look what happens. It, it just gets crazy from here. Verse 16. Then Thomas. Remember Thomas's other name? What do we call him? Do you think Thomas gets a bad rap? Would, how would you like to be known for every emotion you ever had when it comes to faith? What would you be called? You know? Unbelieving Jimmy, you know, Frady Cat Jimmy, Scaredy Cat. I mean, what would, what would we be called? What would be the name that characterizes us? So he's a realist, right? So Thomas, uh, this is funny. Then Thomas, who's also called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go. You think he's going to make this great statement. He says, let us also go that we may die with him. So Thomas, being the realist, is like, well, we're all going to die anyway. Let's just go get it done. Let's get it over with. You can hear the exasperation in Thomas. Later, Thomas is the one that said, unless I see and unless I feel the nail prints and the piercing yourself, I won't even believe. And Jesus didn't even rebuke Thomas. He knew Thomas's personality. He didn't rebuke him. He just said, look, blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. But he didn't rebuke Thomas. Look what he said. I love Thomas. Verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Four days. You ever heard of rigor mortis? I'm not even going to tell you about the dead, bloated, 
sea lion I came up on one time. Anyway, that's a whole other story. Verse 18. For another time. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. We knew that. It's just outside the city. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. These are mourners. This is what they do. They come together in their culture, and they mourn and they weep together. And they, they have a time of mourning. Verse 20. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, what did she do? She goes out of the house because she's a little upset with Jesus. He should have been here. Is that not like Martha? Look what happens. As soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. We keep seeing Mary sitting. She's still in the house. Look what happens. 21, now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, can you see her with her hands on her hip and a finger in his face? If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. How's that for a greeting? Not, hello, good to see you, Jesus. Thanks for coming out. He's this way. No, she fires off. Fires off. Verse 22, but even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. I'm not sure if this was a little bit of manipulation, little pack your bags thing, or if she really had the heart to believe. But look what happens. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Do you see how Jesus keeps speaking on one plane and the disciples and the followers keep missing it? They keep missing his intent and his purpose and his words. He keeps having to clarify. Look what happens. Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again, Jesus said, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, he just kind of camps out on what she just said. And he says, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into this world. So she makes this declaration. He leads her into that carefully, as a teacher does, leads her to come to her own conclusion. Verse 28, when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. Remember, Mary was still in the house sitting. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Verse 30, now, Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in, in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, the mourners, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. So they all come out, and as, as they do in their culture and part of their, their tradition, they're going to go weep with her at the tomb. They don't know. They're about to witness one of the greatest miracles in the history of mankind. Verse 32, then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, look what she did. We already saw her sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now we find out that she wept at his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And now look at the posture she takes. She falls at his feet. She fell down at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She has a very different tone than Martha. Have you noticed? It's from the heart. It's a cry. It's belief. She had belief before she ever got there. Martha had to be convinced, but Mary had belief. Verse 33, therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. This was, this was getting to him. That groaned in the spirit, the same word that's used for compassion, it means a moving of the bowels. Just saying what it is. It's the gut being wrenched. You ever felt your gut wrenched? 
with compassion, with empathy. It's, it's the same thing. So he, he's moved. His gut is wrenched. Why? Because it says he loved them. And look at it in verse 34. He said, there, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. This is the Son of God who knew what was going to happen, but as the Son of Man, remember, he's living in two worlds at the same time. As the Son of Man, he weeps from his human place. And he weeps because he loved them. And look what they said. See how he loved him. Verse 37. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Listen, you have to know something. People are going to talk. Can we just get that out there? I don't care who you are. In any arena of life, if you are the tip of the spear and you're the leader of the moment, people are going to talk. People are going to judge what you do. They're going to assess what you do, and they're going to come to their own conclusions. And you know what? I'll say it nicely. At the end of the day, you're darned if you do, darned if you don't. So we might as well do. If people are going to criticize no matter what we do, why sit back when we can move forward? Why sit back in a setback when our setbacks actually is set up for a comeback that's going to bring honor and glory to God and is going to move things down the field? Why do we resist just because we fear of somebody's opinion of us when really at the end of the day all that matters is God's opinion of us because really that's all that matters. Are we here to please one another? Are we here to please an audience of one? We're here to please Him. That's who we stand before. That's who we fall before. We're here to please him. And that's for free because somebody here is struggling with that right now. So look what happens. Jesus wept. How he loved him. Could not this man have opened the eyes of the blind? Then Jesus again, groaning in himself. There's that compassion. He stirred. Came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away a stone. Remember, there's another stone going to be rolled away in a little bit. This is a precursor. Jesus is setting it up. This is a type and shadow of what's to come. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he's been dead for four days. We don't see the humor in this translation, but if you read it in the King James Version, it says, he stinketh. <laughs> I'm telling you, the Bible's funny. He stinketh. All right. Elizabethan English. You got to love it. It says he's been dead for four days. He's going to reek. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Isn't that a beautiful line? He's just saying, believe. Only believe. Verse 41, then he took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes. And look what he says to God. Father, that's how he addresses God. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Jesus understood because of his relationship with the Father that they've already been in communication. They're in communion all the time. They're talking all the time, practicing his presence, ongoing. Never stops. It's an ongoing conversation. He says, I'm glad that you hear you already. I thank you that you've heard me. Verse 42, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. He's basically thinking out loud on behalf of those who are watching this unfold. Because they've got to be wondering what's about to happen. They just rolled away a stone and it should be stinketh. You know, there should be a stench coming out of there. They're like, what is about to happen? Let's see what happens. Now when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Lazarus, come forth. 
And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. I'm going to add this in because it's not on the slide, but look at the next verse if you've got your Bible. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed him, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him al-. In other words, they began to plot against him because he did good. Do you know you're going to be judged no matter what? Let's do good. Let's move forward. Amen? Now listen to this. In verse 44, he who died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. Listen. It's such a picture of salvation. Jesus calls us from death to life. Am I correct? We are raised from the dead. We're raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6. We know that. We're called from, you know, we were dead in our transgressions. Now we're alive in him. Now listen, when he came out of the grave, he was still bound in grave clothes. There are a lot of us who stepped over the line and we put the helmet of salvation on. Remember we talked about that last week, but we've not put the rest of the armor on. We are a work in process. There is something happening. We are saved and being saved. We are whole and being made whole. It, it, it sounds like a contradiction, but it's, it's a different way of thinking. And it's hard to wrap our minds around it. That's why I have to say wow about a lot of things and not how. Just wow. And this is one of those where he came out alive, but he was still bound. And there are a lot of believers that you've been born again and you love Jesus with your whole heart, but you are still bound up in grave clothes. And Jesus had to issue a command at this point. And the command was loose him and let him go because he was still bound up even though he was alive. Now here's the thing. There was another piece to this. Somebody had to loose him and let him go. Who was it standing around that witnessed this and sees a mummy bouncing out of a cave? Picture it. This is an event, not a fairy tale. This happened. And he bounces out of the cave, bound, hand and foot, the scripture says, in mummy fashion. And he's standing there. I mean, who knows, right? Who's going to go after watching that miracle and unbound him? You know, we don't read about that. We don't catch the flow of that. Somebody had to have the courage to approach a man that had been dead for four days and who's still in a mummy outfit and say, I'll, I'll cut off the grave clothes. I'll, I'll unwrap it, and I don't know what's going to be under there when I unwrap Can you imagine the fear? Can you imagine? Just enter into it with your sanctified imagination. There's more going on here than just this miracle. Part of the miracle is that somebody volunteered and said, I will unbind him. Will you be the one who takes the grave clothes off the people around you that are followers of Jesus, who love God, but they are still bound? Who will be willing to risk taking off the grave clothes and unbinding another person? Is it somebody in your family? 
Is it somebody close to you? Is it a brother or sister that you walk alongside of and you see them constantly tripping over these besetting sins and these besetting behavior patterns? And you're like, ah, I know they love Jesus, but they just keep getting pulled back into these patterns. Somebody needs to unbind the grave clothes and step into obedience where Jesus says, loose him and let him go. Do you believe it's God's will to, that we're all to be loosed and let go after we're saved? We've all come up out of the grave. We've come up out. Should we not have the privilege of also walking in freedom as saved people? So who will? Who will step up? It's messy, by the way. And you don't know what's going to happen when you unwrap that stuff. It could be a decaying corpse in there for all we know. He stinketh. Or it could be somebody just waiting to be freed, waiting to live this life that Jesus talks about. Will you be the one? Would you pray with me? Father, in Jesus' name, I pray for every person here right now. Lord, with the truth of this, will, be, will we be the one for our neighbor? Will we be the one for our family member? Will we be the one for our spouse? Will we be the one for our coworker? that'll step up and say, I'll help unwrap the grave clothes. I'll get in the mess. I'm willing to get decay on me. I'm willing to get, get this nastiness on me to get them free. Father, show us what that looks like, what that means, and how that's played out in reality. I pray for my friends here, my family here. Give us courage to step in where you've already gone and say, yes, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, play, I'll play a role in that. And not just stand back and watch the miracle and applaud, but enter in and participate. Give us the grace, the courage, the passion, the heart, the compassion to enter in and help take off grave clothes. We honor you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. As we close, our prayer team is going to be up here. Yeah.